the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon. Welcome to the Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blend is producing, Clark Hilton Engineering. Dan Rice has given up the use of his office for the sake of the cause. Today I'm looking forward to a conversation with Jack Phillips. He is the owner of Masterpiece Cake Shop in Colorado. He's most recently written the book, The Case, or rather The Cost of My Faith, How a Decision in My Cake Shop Took Me to the Supreme Court. The book is published by Regnery. He'll be joined by his attorney, Jonathan Scruggs. Now, You might ask, why does he need to have his attorney join him? Well, there's an ongoing civil case. Jonathan Scrubs is with um, Alliance Defending Freedom. We'll talk about that uh, most of this first hour. They'll be joining us in the next segment. First, we'll take a look at some of the day's headlines. Republicans on the House Intelligence Committee say there is significant circumstantial evidence that the coronavirus outbreak stemmed from a leak at China's Wuhan Institute of Virology. Now, you might wonder, what does it matter now? Well, it does matter, particularly if this was designed to accomplish what it did in devastating so many economies. Well, the lawmakers urged the federal government to put more pressure on China to allow for a full, credible investigation into the source of the global pandemic. Well, committee ranking member Devin Nunez, a Republican out of California, and Republicans on the panel released a report yesterday, first obtained by Fox News, saying it was crucial for health experts and the U.S. government to understand how COVID-19 virus originated to prevent or quickly mitigate future pandemics. Republicans pointed to China's history of research labs and their leaks resulting in infections and warnings from U.S. diplomats in China as early as 2017 that the Wuhan lab was conducting dangerous research on coronaviruses without following necessary safety protocols, risking the accident outbreak of a pandemic. Republicans also pointed to public reports that several researchers in the Wuhan lab were sickened with COVID-19-like symptoms in the fall of 2019 and the Chinese military's involvement in the Wuhan lab. So they are asking that this um, uh, research uh, continue, that a conclusion ultimately be drawn as to whether or not um, this originated from China. In other developments, Pompeo, Mike Pompeo, said, calls on China to release evidence disproving a Wuhan lab leak theory. Come on, bring it, he said. An ex-New York Times health reporter says a lab leak coronavirus theory is looking stronger, and sources believe the coronavirus outbreak originated in a Wuhan lab as part of China's efforts to compete with the United States. Michigan's Governor Whitner uh, should give notice on out-of-state travel. That's what state Republicans are saying. A bill introduced in the Michigan legislature on Wednesday would require Governor Gretchen Whitmer to notify lawmakers when she plans to travel out of state. The bill follows Whitmer's controversial 27,521 Florida trip, dollar, I should say, Florida trip, in March when she visited her um, ailing father but initially refused to give details about the trip. 
Um, Bobby Letty, the governor's press secretary, claimed the legislation was politically motivated. It would behoove the legislature to read the Michigan Constitution, which clearly outlines a process to ensure that there is always an acting governor available to continue the functions of the state in case of an emergency, he said, according to the Detroit Free Press. If the legislature wants to waste their time playing games, that's their own decision. But Governor Whitmer is going to remain focused on ending this pandemic and putting Michigan back to work. In other developments, Michigan Governor Whitmer's controversial Florida trip is the subject of an IRS complaint. And the company that flew the governor is not authorized for charter flights, according to the FAA. Well, Michigan uh, uh, Governor Whitmer uh, paid $27,521 for the Florida trip using a mix of donor funds and her own cash, according to an aide. The Michigan governor uh, is looking to shut down the Inbridge pipeline during the nation's gas shortage. Many are raising an eyebrow over that. Well, rural Oregon counties are looking to join more conservative Idaho. It's an effort to move nearly two dozen of Oregon's most rural counties into the more conservative neighboring state of Idaho. And that's gained momentum with five counties voting this week in favor of having local officials consider the issue. The bid has been spearheaded by the citizens of Greater Idaho, which wants to relocate between 18 to 22 Oregon counties to Idaho, according to Fox 12 in Portland. On Tuesday, Sherman, Lake, Grant, Baker, and Malheur counties joined two others who voted in November in favor of discussing the issue. The Oregon-Idaho border was established 161 years ago and is now outdated. That's what Citizens for Greater Idaho says on its website. It makes no sense in its current location because it doesn't match the location of the cultural divide in Oregon. In other developments, Idaho's lieutenant governor has launched a GOP challenge to Governor Brad Little in 2022. And Newt Gingrich says blue states are hemorrhaging people, shoving them away as um, Democrats continue to raise taxes. Netanyahu brushed off President Biden's call for significant de-escalation in Gaza, saying Israel is determined to continue to defend itself. And Elizabeth City, North Carolina police have declared unlawful assemblies amid the latest Andrew Brown Jr. protests. Mayor Lightfoot, she's slamming the overwhelming whiteness of the Chicago press while defending her decision to only speak to reporters of color. Microsoft plans to pull the plug on Internet Explorer and the University of Pennsylvania's health system is requiring employees to get the COVID vaccine or they'll be fired. The Colonial Pipeline CEO is being pressed by lawmakers over the $4.4 million ransom payment and states are reimposing work requirements for unemployment amid hiring shortages. Well, Texas Governor Abbott has signed one of... um, the most life-affirming abortion laws in the country. The Texas Tribune reports that Governor Abbott, that Governor Greg Abbott, signed into law Wednesday a measure that would prohibit in Texas abortions as early as six weeks before some women know that they're pregnant and open the door for almost any private citizen to sue abortion providers and others. From USA Today, the restriction puts Texas at the vanguard among states challenging the boundaries of Roe v. Wade, the 1973 landmark Supreme Court case that established a woman's legal right to an abortion. Richard Dawkins says this. In 2014, Dawkins commented it would uh, be immoral to bring a child with Down syndrome into the world. From National Review, when eliminating suffering becomes because society's first priority, instead of protecting innocent human life, 
It very easily metastasizes into eliminating the sufferer. And the suffering need not even be that of the person eliminated, but of family or society. Um, utilitarianism always leads to justifying killing. You can read more on that in National Review. Well, as rocket fire continues, Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez leads an effort to undermine U.S. support of Israel. The New York Post says a group of House Democrats led by Ocasio-Cortez introduced a resolution on Wednesday to halt the Biden-approved sale of $735 million in weapons to Israel. Approving this sale now while failing to even try to use it as leverage for a ceasefire sends a clear message to the world the U.S. is not interested in peace and does not care about human rights and the lives of Palestinian. Tlaib argued in a statement released at the same time. Katie um, Pavlich points out that Democratic Congresswoman uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is dishonestly accusing Israel of purposely targeting civilians in Gaza through military strikes in schools, hospitals, and media outlets. The latest attacks uh, from AOC and the left is calling Israel an apartheid state. And Nikki Haley says the media hasn't targeted a terrorist organization uh, or um, doesn't seem to know what one is. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we'll talk with Jack Phillips, author of The Cost of My Faith, How a Decision in My Cake Shop Took Me to the Supreme Court. He'll be joined by attorney Jonathan Scruggs with Alliance Defending Freedom. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. As I mentioned earlier, I've been looking forward to this conversation, and I know you will uh, enjoy it as well. Joining me is Jack Phillips. He is the author of The Cost of My Faith, How a Decision in My Cake Shop Took Me to the Supreme Court, as well as Jonathan Scruggs. He is an attorney with Alliance Defending Freedom and has been a part of this case that is so familiar to so many of us over this period of time. One of the questions that I think many of us have uh, thought and many have asked is why not just bake the cake? Well, that's a question that lots of people across the country started asking back in 2012 when Jack Phillips uh, told two men who walked into his masterpiece cake shop that he couldn't create a custom cake for their same-sex wedding. Now, most of us know that story. The question only grew more urgent as um, he had to defend himself first uh, before the Colorado Civil Rights Commission and then numerous courts losing every step of the way until the U.S. Supreme Court ruled in his favor in June of 2018. Well, he has written a book about this odyssey, and I'm so delighted that we have an opportunity to learn more. When Jack Phillips opened his masterpiece cake shop in 1993. He gave it the name that reflected his intentional blending of culinary skill and artistic talent, all for the glory of God. Well, he and his wife, Debbie, have three grown children and make their home in Colorado. Uh, Jack joins us today to talk about the cost of my faith, how a decision in my cake shop took me to the Supreme Court, along with Jonathan Scruggs, who is an attorney with Alliance Defending Freedom in this cake. Jack and Jonathan, thank you both for joining us today. That's my pleasure. Thank you for having us. I don't want to assume that all of our listeners are familiar with this case, so let's begin before the beginning. Maybe, Jack, you can fill us in a little bit about Masterpiece Cake Shop, what your dream and vision was for the the, uh, uh, the cake shop that brought you to the conflict that made your name virtually a household name for many. So go back to 1993 when we opened the shop or farther back. I graduated high school in 1974. I needed a job, and a man that lived across the street from me owned a large wholesale bakery, like 100 employees, and imagined conveyor belts with donuts and Danish and just a lot of activity and huge amount of products. And I 
until I was baking. I thought this was just a great job. And then a year or two down the road, he bought out another bakery and brought in cake decorating. And I had never seen that, but I knew that would be my future because I have an art art background. I love to do art, paint, draw, sculpt, all those things. And when I saw that, I thought, that cake is you know, my new canvas. And so I'm going to open a bakery someday. And immediately I knew the name of it. It would be Masterpiece Cake Shop because Masterpiece says art and Cake Shop says cakes. And you wouldn't come into the shop looking for a loaf of bread or a, or a pie, <laughs> but you would hopefully come in and uh, know that it was a place where you could get an artistic cake to celebrate your uh, special occasions. You are now largely known as a Christian baker because of events that occurred when two men walked into your cake shop asking for a cake to be designed for a ceremony that you could not embrace. Tell us about that day that for you and your family changed everything. Well, that day was it was a beautiful July afternoon here in Denver. And um, like every other day, I had two men that came in. Well, not like every other day, but every day we have people that come in and... Mm-hmm. We're glad to serve everybody who comes in. This day, two men were sitting at our wedding desk, and it's an area where we have uh, tiered cakes and wedding cakes set up, where we do consultations, and not just for weddings, but for other events as well. We'll, we'll sit down and we'll draw and we'll sculpt, uh, we'll sketch and make you know make clear the ideas that we're going to create on a cake. So anyway, I walked around the desk and sat down opposite these two men, and, and I introduced myself. They gave me their names, and then one of them said, you know, we're here to look at wedding cakes. And the other one jumped in, and like, yeah, and it's for our wedding. And I immediately knew what my response was going to be, because this was not a cake that we could create. Back in, uh, before 1993, when he opened it, my wife and I had you know, laid some ground rules. There are cakes that we will create, cakes that we won't, including... We don't create cakes that celebrate Halloween or that are un-American or racist or that denigrate or degrade or insult other people. And we also talked about that we wouldn't create cakes that celebrate same-sex weddings, even though back in 1993, it was illegal. It wasn't legal in the United States. It was illegal in the state of Colorado. So we knew, we didn't think that would ever come up. But here it was facing me. And so I knew what my answer would be. I'm sorry, guys. I don't create cakes for same-sex weddings. They looked at me, you know, stunned, kind of blankly, and like, what did you just say? I said, well, I'll sell you birthday cakes, shower cakes, sell you cookies and brownies. I just don't do cakes for same-sex weddings. And one of them jumped up, flipped me off, started swearing, stormed out the door. The other one got up, stormed out the other door, and, and just left me absolutely stunned. It's like 29 words in 20 seconds, and it just changed my whole life. Yeah, you probably could not have anticipated at that point what would follow. But let me ask you the question that so many have asked, not understanding your conviction. Why not just bake the cake? I mean, it's it's sugar, it's flour. Why not bake the cake? What's the difference? Well, it's more than just sugar and flour and eggs. It's it's like I said, it's my canvas. It's what I create art on. And we sit down with the, with the customer and we decide, you know, what's a special event? It might be grandma's birthday and you want to show how much you love her because um, this is the way you want to do it. But we'll, we'll figure out what is grandma like, you know, what would make this cake really special and show that, that special message for her. And in this case, uh, the wedding cake in itself, a wedding cake by itself has an inherent message. If you mm-hmm. were at a hotel room and you walked in, opened the door to a conference room and looked in the corner and there's a cake sitting on the table, you would know that that was a wedding was to be celebrated there. You wouldn't think it's a business meeting. You would know instinctively just by seeing that that wedding cake, that there's a wedding taking place. 
So the wedding cake itself has an inherent message. And this was a message for a, to celebrate a view of marriage that goes against my biblical view, my biblical belief of marriage and what the Bible teaches. And uh, so it was a message that I couldn't create. And so I tried in those few sentences to tell these men, I'll serve you anything else. You know, you're welcome. I'll make other custom cakes, but I can't create cakes that express messages that go against my faith. Now, Jonathan, you're an attorney. Talk a little bit about the legal ramifications of making the announcement that I have declined to create a certain kind of cake that that contradicts my biblical worldview. Talk a little bit about the the legal challenge that followed. Uh, As Jack noted, when he declined to create that cake, he was essentially sued by uh, the government. Uh, It was put through an administrative process uh, through the state and accused of violating Colorado's public accommodation law, which bans discrimination. And that's essentially what the state accused him of doing. Uh, And our defense was simple, uh, that Jack doesn't, uh, Jack serves everyone. Uh, he, He just doesn't convey all messages that are requested of them. This is no different than an LGBT artist who declines to create artwork condemning same-sex marriage, right? No one, the government shouldn't force that. It shouldn't force Jackie either. So that case proceeded up through the system and eventually uh, went to the U.S. Supreme Court, where the U.S. Supreme Court said that uh, Colorado officials treated Jack unfairly, that they showed hostility toward his religious beliefs, both in what they said and also in how they treated him unfairly compared to other uh, bakers and other artists. Um, and, and we won. So Jack can fill in a little bit about those details. But the overall ruling of the case is, you know, the government shouldn't force people to speak messages they disagree with that violates their core convictions. And that's a freedom that should apply to both sides and on all different views. Well, it seems like the Supreme Court decision should put an end to the argument uh, and that this should be a, a done deal, that you don't, you cannot be forced by the government uh, to produce something that conflicts with your core values. Is that the end, or is this an ongoing debate across the country? Uh, unfortunately, it's an ongoing debate. Uh, you would think that a U.S. Supreme Court decision would settle it, but you have seen governments, even in Jack's situation, but also across the country, try to apply these similar laws to force other artists to speak messages they disagree with. Uh, but you also see courts squarely ruling in the favor of these artists, uh, such as there's a court in Arizona, a court in Minnesota that have ruled in favor of these decisions. And, of course, Jack is being sued again uh, most recently. He just recently went through a trial uh, because he was uh, – basically someone requested him to uh, create a cake celebrating a gender transition, which Jack declined. So we're seeing these uh, incidents pop up all, all across the country. We are continuing to defend them. We're continuing to defend Jack uh, because the free, First Amendment and free speech are on his side. We're talking with Jack Phillips with Masterpiece Cake Shop. And, of course, he's the author of the, uh, the new book, The Cost of My Faith, How a Decision in My Cake Shop Took Me to the Supreme Court. Also joining us, Jonathan Scruggs. He is an attorney with Alliance Defending Freedom, without which uh, we, we'd be in a bad way. They do some tremendous work defending religious freedom and other issues of great concern. We'll take a quick break, but we'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Jonathan Scruggs, who is an attorney with Alliance Defending Freedom, and Jack Phillips. He is the author most recently of The Cost of My Faith, How a Decision in My Cake Shop Took Me to 
the Supreme Court. Now, what was it like to be confronted uh, in your own cake shop and holding to a biblical worldview and that becoming such a controversy that ultimately it led you through many courts and uh, finally the Supreme Court with this still being unresolved? What was that like for you, Jack Phillips, a man of faith, a man of conviction? And yeah, it is my faith that compels all my actions. You know, the way I treat my employees, the way I treat my customers, the way I treat my marriage or handle my money. And for that faith to be attacked by the government like this and drugged through the courts for these many years was just really unthinkable. Um, But we've had to uh, go through these court systems, and we've been through, uh, we're in our third lawsuit that uh, Jonathan was just talking about, where an attorney here in Colorado uh, called us up and requested a custom cake. Uh, blue on the outside and pink on the inside, and those colors were to celebrate um, a gender transition. And when we told this uh, person that that's not a cake that we could create, it's the message of the cake, but that person was welcome in our store, and we did create other um, events, uh, cakes for other events. That person Mm -hmm. sued us through the same Civil Rights Commission. That case was eventually dismissed, and then this attorney, rather than... uh, the state dismissed it, and this attorney, rather than appeal that dismissal, uh, decided to sue us personally in civil court. So we're in that court now, and part of the thinking of this person was to correct the errors in my thinking, and that was one of the basis of the uh, lawsuit. Hmm. Now, you lost a significant part of your business because uh, of... Uh, the decision you made to stand firmly in your faith and oppose making uh, a cake that reflected something that you could not embrace. Talk a little bit about how you have navigated in your community and the impact that all of this has had on your business. Yeah, it was a significant ruling against us back in the first stage when the administrative law court ruled against us that I had violated this law. And they said that I had to... um, changed my policies, I had to retrain my staff, and I had to report to the uh, commission quarterly for two years on the um, the effectiveness of my retraining. Um, part of the uh, wedding business was that, uh, um, or the part of the business that lost was the wedding business because the commission said that if I'm going to create wedding cakes, I have to create them for everybody. Also included with that was that I wouldn't be able to be included in the in the design. So if a, a couple came in, same sex or heterosexual, and they wanted, say, an adult theme on their cake or a pornographic theme, I wouldn't have a choice of creating that. I would have to do it. And uh, that's something that we couldn't do. So we either had to agree to create every cake that came to us or uh, drop our lucrative wedding business, which was a large percentage of our business at that time. So we dismissed our wedding business and uh, um, God's been faithful to cover all of our stuff beyond that. At the same time, I also had 10 employees, and after we were after we lost our wedding business, we were down to four employees, including myself. So there were some um, deep ramifications that came with that decision. Making the decision to decline making a cake uh, for a same-sex wedding ceremony <laughs> has been very costly. In fact, you could not have anticipated how costly it would have uh, ultimately be. Let me ask you if you've ever... Um, second-guess that decision, and what the cost has been for you, for your business, and for your family? You know, honestly, we have never second-guessed it. When, before we started the cake shop, we knew what those lines would be that we couldn't cross, and this was one of them. We couldn't cross it then, we couldn't cross it now, and I've never once thought, well, maybe I should have just made the cake. 
the decision that we made was right, but it has been a costly decision. Um, we had 10 employees before this all happened. We were down to four, including myself. Um, we lost our uh, very lucrative wedding business, which was a large percentage of our income. And uh, it was, yeah, some hard hard ramifications from that, but the uh, the decision was easy and the decision was right. I, I know a lot of um, believers in particular who just want to stay out of the, the spotlight. If we just don't say anything, if we just keep our heads down, we can avoid the kind of challenge that you have obviously um, had to live with. Uh, where did the courage come from to make that initial pronouncement? You know, I can't make this cake for you. I'm willing to serve you in any other way. And then to stay the course, which has been a very long and arduous process that ultimately led you to the U.S. Supreme Court. Well, part of that um, was preparation that uh, of our deci- from our decision early on that we wouldn't create cakes to celebrate Halloween, some of the other cakes that we decided not to create. Uh, people would ask us for adult-themed cakes. We already knew we weren't going to make those. So, you know, we have to turn those away and graciously offer, you know, other products or other designs. And the Halloween thing, that comes up every year, multiple times, September, October, you get a request for cakes that we had decided not to do. So God was gracious in that and giving us the practice in saying, this is not a cake that we can create because of our religious beliefs, our deeply held religious convictions. And so we were prepared when the big one came. And then standing up for it, you know, the options were you either stand up for it or you fold or you close the shop or the state finds you or whatever and, and you lose the shop. And all of those were costs we were willing to take. But we couldn't go back and change the decision. We wouldn't. How have you seen God work during this uh, very challenging season? Um, I write about some of them in The Cost of My Faith. Mm-hmm. But I think that one of the, the main things that he's done with us, helping us grow in our, our faith, um, was providing for all of our needs without the wedding business and without all those things, but also providing Alliance Defending Freedom to come in and stand beside us and help us through all this. Um, Alliance Defending Freedom defends all their clients pro bono, which means for free, but it's not free. They they use donations to help fight these battles, and these are not just. This is not just my battle. I realized when we were going to the uh, Supreme Court trying to make that decision, you know, should we petition the court or not? And the odds of getting selected by the court are less than 1%. They just don't take, they turn away mm-hmm. over 7,000 of the 8,000 cases. Or, you know, seven or 8,000 cases are presented every year, and they take about 70. So the odds of getting there are, are slim. And I thought, well, we're already not there. Why don't we petition? The worst that could happen is that we're officially not there. And they said, no, the worst that could happen is they grant your case, and then you lose. And at that point, I realized that this was more than just Jack and his cakes. This is right for every American to be free to live and work according to their conscience without fear of punishment from the government and not have to express messages that they don't agree with. And so watching God prepare us and then bringing ADF to help and the advice and help that they've given us all the way through, just small examples of, of the ways that he helped us grow and protected us through this whole thing. You know, most of us are aware of the challenge uh, of the uh, that came when you made that decision and that announcement and everything that followed. But how has God used this situation to uh, generate conversation or to give you opportunities to share your faith? Has there been that side of this whole conflict as well? Oh, there has been right from the first, like the very first Saturday, the two men came in on Thursday and then on that following Saturday, I was getting all these crazy, hateful, weird phone calls. 
but then I got a call in the middle of the day from a man who identified himself as an atheist from somewhere up northwest uh, United States, and and we had a conversation. It was like 45 minutes long, and I I gave him the gospel, you know, three or four different ways. Or another day, um, a radio station, a local station, did a broadcast from our show, a live broadcast from our shop. And one of the first men that came in at 5 o'clock that morning identif- identified himself, said, my name is Mike Jones, and I'm a gay man, and I came to see what's going on here. Hi, Mike, how are you? And we struck up a conversation, and he came back later that day, and we've become friends ever since. And what makes that unique is that Mike Jones was a former gay activist, and he's <laughs> on our side now, and he even testified for us in the last... Uh, court case back in March. And it's just amazing the platform that God has given us. We're going to need to take a break, so uh, we'll uh, do that right now. But we will continue our conversation with Jack Phillips, author of The Cost of My Faith, How a Decision in My Cake Shop Took Me to the Supreme Court. The book is published by Regnery. We're also talking with Jonathan Scruggs. He's an attorney with Alliance Defending Freedom, has done uh, extraordinary work in this case and many others to protect uh, religious freedom. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Jack Phillips. He's the author of The Cost of My Faith, How a Decision in My Cake Shop Took Me to the Supreme Court. We're also talking with Jonathan Scruggs. He is an attorney with Alliance Defending Freedom. Jonathan, we are familiar with Jack Phillips' case, and many of us have followed Masterpiece Cake Shop over the years. How common is this uh, this challenge becoming, and is are we close to a, a time in which the question of whether or not uh, an artist, for example, is free to decline to produce art that does not uh, comport with their um, deeply and sincerely held beliefs. Well, unfortunately, it is a comic occurrence that you see these type of government entities, these commissions, these legis- uh, administrative bodies going after artists, particularly people of faith, uh, because they can't promote messages they disagree with. I noted earlier uh, we won a case in Arizona on behalf of an art studio, a painter and a calligrapher. Uh, also a case on behalf of two filmmakers in Minnesota, but the cases are ongoing. Uh, there's photographer cases in Kentucky and Virginia, and just recently a new case was filed in the state of New York. Uh, but so far we've won a, a vast majority of these cases under the simple principle that uh, free speech shouldn't be just for those who agree with the government. Uh, it should apply to both sides. It should go both ways. And that that's a winning message, both in the courtroom, but also more broadly. I think people understand that we can't have these freedoms be selective, that in order for our democracy to work, we've got to protect people regardless of their views, regardless if they're popular today or, or popular tomorrow. Uh, and those are important principles that we're defending uh, throughout all these cases, and particularly in Jack's case. Now, Jack mentioned that you uh, worked with him pro bono, but the services you provide are not cost-free. Uh, in the interest of full disclosure, I've financially contributed to Alliance Defending Freedom because I believe very strongly in what you all do. For people who want to support your work, certainly with Jack Phillips and others, what's the best way for them to learn more as well as to help support your ongoing efforts? Uh, the best way is to visit our website, www.adflegal.org, and you can learn about all our cases and what things we're doing. And or Also, if you'd like to contribute your time or prayers or, or monetary funds, we appreciate that as well. Let me ask you, Jack, what do you say to people 
who are afraid, who are afraid of being confronted, being challenged, having to stand up uh, for the sake of the gospel and say, this is where I draw the line. I will go no further because it is a frightening thing to consider the weight of um, civil government or, the, or any uh, opposition that might come when we as followers of Jesus decide I'm going to be a man or woman of conviction. Well, like I said, the, uh, my wife and I drew our lines in the sand and, and we knew which ones you know, we could cross or which one yes. we could move, but, you know, some are firmly drawn and, and they, we can't move them, we can't cross them. Um, even, like, looking at the prospect of the uh, ruling in the case that we're at, if it goes against us, um, it, well, actually, if I win, the lawyer who's suing me told me face-to-face in a mediation meeting and under oath in court that if I were to win this case, um, I would get a phone call the very next day and we go, we'd start all over again. Even knowing that's coming, I can't cross that line because you have to know which lines you're going to cross, which lines you're not, and they have to be worth it. And uh, Jesus Christ is worth that standing on the side, on the right side of the line for. What has life been like for you since the Supreme Court, and certainly with these pen, the pending case that you've been referencing, uh, and how has that impacted your faith? Uh, it's it's been good for. For my faith, my family, my wife, my daughters, um, our whole family has grown closer together, and we just, you know, we, we build each other up, we hold each other accountable for things, and uh, God has just helped us out through this whole thing. So um, it's, it's been a profitable experience that way, that God has really taken care of us and blessed us and drawn us closer to Him. Have you had opportunities to share your testimony um, in settings that would not have been available to you had this not occurred? Uh, yeah, many times. And now with the cost of my faith, my testimony is, is in there as clearly as I could write it in Chapter 7. And, uh, mm-hmm. that's the, uh, I've had people tell me they read Chapter 7 first. And <laughs> I want to share my, my testimony as many ways as I can and this is one of them, and face-to-face with people who come into the shop and ask me these same questions. Why didn't you just make the cake? And then we can open up this conversation. Have you had any pushback from uh, men and women of faith who uh, think, you know, this is uh, small potatoes, you should have baked the cake, um, or do you find broad support within the believing community? Broad support within the community, but still some detractors who say, you know, Jesus would have baked a cake, and um, that came up on a TV show that I did an interview on, and and I don't believe he would have. I'm sure he wouldn't have, because that would make him contradict his own word. And so I try and point those kind of issues out to uh, people who identify as Christians, that uh, that's not a Christian principle, that Jesus wouldn't do that, and he doesn't. He doesn't want us to um, go along with this um, ideology either that we should. You know, well, we you need him to be follow him. Men and women of conscience and violating one's conscience is not a uh, thing that I would uh, certainly advise, nor does Scripture. Uh, Jonathan Scruggs, let me ask you what to anticipate moving forward. Obviously, Jack is facing another uh, a court challenge. Um, what do you anticipate happening there? And uh, how does that uh, reflect what's going on elsewhere with regard to artists being uh, pressured into violating their own conscience? Sure. Well, uh, as we've talked about, Jack uh, recently got done with a trial uh, in uh, a lower court in Colorado, and we're waiting for a ruling uh, from that case. Uh, could happen any day in the upcoming weeks. 
And then potentially that case could be appealed up to the next level, whether it be the Colorado Court of Appeals, Colorado Supreme Court, or the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, so these issues are going to be resolved, and then you have a nationwide perspective where you've got the Equality Act uh, that's being considered in Congress, which essentially would make the same law that Jack is being prosecuted under, would make it a nationwide law to allow any artist to be prosecuted uh, for holding beliefs that Jack holds. Um, so eventually, one of these cases, uh, whether it be Jack's case or these cases filtered out across the country in Virginia and New York, is going to go to the U.S. Supreme Court. And the U.S. Supreme Court is going to decide the big issue here is that really do Americans have freedom to bring their faith into their workplace uh, or can the government compel them to address ideas and ideologies and to favor ideologies they disagree with. Uh, so we look forward to that day and we're confident that the arguments that we're making in these court cases will be accepted by them and eventually accepted by the U.S. Supreme Court. You know, these are such huge issues. If you're tempted to dismiss this because we're talking about a cake being baked, uh, don't underestimate the significance of uh, what we're talking about here because it does have very broad implications. And as you've pointed out, to Jonathan, uh, those have the potential to reach into virtually every area of life when you're talking about the expression of faith in the public square. Again, the book that we've been talking about, The Cost of My Faith, How a Decision in My Cake Shop Took Me to the Supreme Court. And I, I so appreciate your letting us sit in on this whole process. I think for many of us, we couldn't even imagine being in the situation that you found yourself in by simply stating, you know, this is one thing I can't do. I can do 15 other things, but this one thing I can't do. And not surprisingly, it uh, it ultimately took you all the way to the Supreme Court. And these issues are still very active all across the country. Uh, Jack, let me ask you in closing, what's your message to our listeners today who may find themselves in a similar situation with the details on the particulars being quite different, but being called upon to stand firmly on their conviction and faith um, that may lead them into places they, uh, uh, they, they at this point couldn't imagine. What's, what's your word to, to the rest of us? Well, one of my uh, favorite verses is Second Chronicles 16.9. It says that the eyes of the Lord range throughout the whole earth to strengthen the man whose heart is fully committed to him. And he's shown himself faithful to that. He's shown us his strength. He's shown his strength through us. And because our heart is fully committed to him. And I would just encourage people to, uh, you know, get to know him, read their Bibles, spend time in, in the Word and in prayer and fellowship with other believers to get to know who he, who this God is and who we serve and to do our best to serve him with our whole hearts. Yeah, yeah. Well, Jack, I appreciate your sharing your story and your uh, willingness to stand up for many of us uh, in the court and uh, continue to do so. Again, the book is The Cost of My Faith, How a Decision in My Cake Shop Took Me to the Supreme Court. I also want to thank Jonathan Scruggs, who, along with ADF, have uh, stood and, and supported Jack Phillips, representing him in court and so many others across the country. You do extraordinary work, and I'm grateful that you're willing to do that. Thank you to both of you for talking with us today. Thank you, Georgine. It's been a pleasure. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. Well, former President George W. Bush says the effort of Hamas and Iran is to break up 
the Abraham Accords. Speaking to Fox News, he said, I think it's very difficult at this stage. He said, I wish, obviously, all of us should hope there's not violence. But what I think you're seeing playing out is Iranian influence targeted toward Israel and trying to break up alliances that were formed in the previous administration called the Abraham Accords. He went on to call Iran Uh, dangerous for stability. I think the best approach with regard to Iran is to understand that their influence is dangerous for the world peace, that they are um, uh, very much involved with extremist movements in Lebanon, Syria, and Yemen, and they are aiming to spread their influence. In other news, a California church wins a lawsuit settlement freeing houses of worship. The settlement is a First Amendment victory for California churches, allowing them to worship without fear of further government interference. Well, the lawsuit comes from the California church Harvest Rock. LifeSite News reports that once the... uh, once entered by the the district court, this full settlement will be the first statewide permanent injunction in the country against COVID restrictions on churches and places of worship. Under the agreed statewide permanent injunction, all California churches may hold worship without discriminatory restrictions. The governor has been ordered to pay $1.3 million in legal fees if only the $1.3 million could come from the uh, uh, Newsom personal estate, but of course it probably won't. Well, the American Medical Association is pushing critical race theory on medical professionals. Uh, The Daily Wire reports that the AMA, the nation's largest professional association of physicians, published its organizational strategic plan to embed racial justice and advance health equity last week. The 86-page document outlines a three-year plan to implement anti-racist initiatives, which on its face sounds like a great idea until you read the details, including pushing critical race theory, specifically in the medical community. The plan announces a five-pronged approach to embracing equality, or equity as it's now uh, being uh, referred to. The AMA makes a commitment to embed racial and social justice throughout the organization's policies and practices and promises to build alliances and uh, share power with historically marginalized uh, minoritized physicians. The AMA, with the input of many, uh, both inside and outside of AMA, uh, this strategic plan serves as the three-year roadmap to plant the initial um, seeds for action and accountability to embed racial justice and advance health equity for years to come, according to the AMA. The Seattle Police Department is down 20%. CBS reports the Seattle Police Department is struggling under the backlash of recent police reforms. The state of Washington has just enacted a dozen police reform laws following nearly a year of protests over police brutality. More than $840 million were cut from the U.S. police budgets in 2020. This has caused a shortage of police in Seattle. The police chief tells CBS News that 260 officers, which is almost 20 percent of the force, have left in the past year and a half. From the police tribune, morale is not good, and that's because we don't have the political support from our elected officials. Seattle's police official uh, guild president, Mike Sloan, stated, and as we've seen police officers flee this area, it's a direct result of that lack of police support, that political support. Corporations are starting to see a pushback from their embrace of left-wing political activism. An ad campaign was launched this week. Each ad uh, treats the uh, companies like a political candidate uh, would an opponent. 
hitting the company's reputation and contrasting its high-minded social justice rhetoric with its other behavior. Nike embraced Colin uh, Kaepernick, the woke former quarterback. One ad says, uh, but rather than hiring Americans, Nike chose China. The ad mentions CEO John Donahoe and claims the company produces shoes in a factory in regions suspected of using forced Uyghur labor. You can read uh, more on that in the Wall Street Journal. Well, commencement season is on us. A call to courage should also be in place. Ryan Anderson at Trinity Law School in Orange County, California, points out in public discourse, we hear it for grave evils stand in our way. Courage is the virtue that helps us stay the course. C.S. Lewis taught that courage is the form of um, all the virtues. He explains that courage is not simply one of the virtues, but the form of every virtue at the testing point. We're going to hear a bit more about courage when we talk to Jack Phillips um, as we did this last uh, hour, and you can hear that on our podcast. Your autocorrect may have just become more woke, so you may want to check up on your autocorrect. If you use Google Docs, Google Docs will now make more inclusive suggestions and edits in its predictive text algorithm. The technology will now correct gendered words such as mailman to mail carrier or chairman to chairperson, Product leaders told Reuters that the technology had to be changed to avoid offending users. So if you embrace those changes, good for you. If not, you're going to need to be very vigilant in seeing what uh, Google Docs is saying on your behalf. Well, the House has approved legislation to form a commission to investigate the Capitol riots. Mitch McConnell opposes the Democrats' partisan proposal, trying to keep that uh, alive for political purposes. GOP House Intel says the overwhelming circumstantial evidence points to the Wuhan lab as the COVID-19 origin. And in government and politics, in a classic uh, case of a double standard, Vice President Kamala Harris keeps assets in tax-advantaged trusts appearing to violate her own ethics pledge. Netanyahu has brushed off President Biden's call for significant de-escalation in Gaza. And having your cake and eating it, too? Convicted former Congressman Chaka Fatah still draws an estimated $1 million in, in federal lifetime pension. Huh. Convicted former congressman. In national security, the colonial pipeline hacker Darkside reaped $90 million from 47 victims uh, most recently. Around the nation, Texas has passed an abortion ban protecting every unborn child with a heartbeat, and coronavirus infections continue to plummet across the U.S. Nevertheless, many people are reluctant to shed their masks. Utah lawmakers have passed a school mask mandate prohibition, and Pennsylvania voters approved restrictions on the governor's emergency powers. Seattle, as I mentioned, lost almost 20% of its police force, saying we're not allowed to intercede. And in the annals of the social justice caliphate, Chicago's discriminatory mayor is giving interviews only to journalists of color. A transgender athlete just won a women's golf tournament and is set to win on the LPGA Tour. So much for women's sports. American Airlines, Nike and Coca-Cola are being targeted in a new ad campaign by a conservative consumer group. You can read more about that in the Washington Examiner. And on this day in history, 1873, Levi Strauss and uh, Taylor Jacob Davis, they receive a U.S. patent for men's work pants made with copper rivets. 1927, Car- uh, Charles Lindbergh, he takes off from Roosevelt Field on Long Island, New York, aboard the Spirit of the St. Louis on his historic solo flight to France. 
1932, Amelia Earhart, she takes off from Newfoundland to become the first woman to fly solo across the Atlantic. 1961, on this day in history, a white mob attacks a busload of freedom riders in Montgomery, Alabama, prompting the federal government to send in U.S. Marshals to restore order. The group had left Washington in two buses heading to Louisiana. Later, one bus would be burned in Anniston, Alabama. 2014, hundreds of retired professional football players sue the NFL, accusing the league of cynically supplying them with powerful painkillers and other drugs that kept them in the game but led to serious complications later in life. Finally, on this day in history, 2018, Venezuelan President Nicolas Maduro, he wins a new six-year term, but the election is disputed and rivals disavow the results due to massive irregularities in the process. Well, Portland plans to remove the homeless encampments more aggressively following COVID-19 pause. The city of Portland announced yesterday that it's going to get more aggressive in removing what it deems the most problematic homeless encampments in the city. Since the beginning of the pandemic, the city has scaled back how many camps officials remove and how quickly the removal process happens. It was an effort to limit COVID-19 transmission among people living on the streets and was in line with the recommendations from the CDC. Well, the city stopped, uh, rather stopped all camp removals between March and July of 2020 and since then has removed fewer camps than typical and given campers more time to move after an eviction notice was posted. But on Wednesday, the city announced new uh, health and safety protocols for clearing the camp starting on Monday. Under these rules, city officials can prioritize removing campsites that met certain criteria, including campsites with eight or more structures, blocks uh, someone's ability to use public sidewalks, paths, transit uh, stations, public restrooms, or building entrances, locations with credible reports of criminal behavior other than camping, presence of biohazardous materials identified by the Portland Fire and Rescue as an extreme fire risk or blocking critical fire access, sites that block Americans with Disabilities Act access or other accessibility requirements, and sites that impact school operations. Homeless camps will begin being cleared on the 24th of this month as the new guidelines take effect. Before the pandemic, the city reported clearing roughly 50 camps a week, but that number today has dropped to five a week. City officials say their campsite removal is still a last resort reserved for encampments that pose the highest risk to health safety. All five city council members reviewed the new proposal and released a joint statement saying in part the commissioners, mayor and their staffs reflected on existing unhoused camps around Portland, solicited feedback from housed and unhoused Portlanders and worked to develop responsive protocols that balance these competing elements. These new protocols reprioritize public health and safety among houseless Portlanders and aim to improve sanity. Uh, sanitary conditions, I suppose both would apply, until we have additional shelter beds and housing available. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Quick break. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, Google Docs will now make more inclusive suggestions and edits in their predictive text algorithm. The technology will now correct gendered words uh, to make them gender neutral. On the 18th, Google held its virtual I.O. developer conference, the Daily Mail reported, that the new update on Google Doc will suggest ways to avoid offensive language and gendered language. Uh, Google has made similar changes in 2018 
2016, after the company fell under fire for its predictive gendered pronoun language, the company opted to remove gender pronouns from the predictive text feature altogether. Well, product leaders uh, told Reuters that the technology had to be changed to avoid offending users. Well, my guess is they will offend on both sides of that continuum. Google's technology will not suggest gender-based pronouns because the risk is too high that its smart, composed technology might predict someone's sex or gender identity incorrectly and offend users who are, well, ready to be offended or quite easily offended. Google already banned expletives and slurs from predictive technologies as well as mentions of business rivals or uh, tragic events in history. The Google Style Guide has uh, also updated, been updated data to be more understanding of mental health variables to placeholder variables and final sanity check to final check for completeness and clarity. Now, these are replacing what you may have uh, uh, typed with what they believe is a better option. Uh, the chief executive officer for Google and Alphabet committed the company to focusing on social and racial justice issues in June of last year. The CEO emailed employees, letting them know that the company was strengthening their commitment to racial equity and inclusion and would work to build sustainable equity for its black plus community. Um, he also committed to improving uh, representation and leadership, establishing a range of anti-racism educational programs and focusing uh, on better support for the mental health and physical health and well-being of our Black Plus community. Well, Google has uh, acted on its commitment to establish anti-racism programming. The company uh, uh, teamed up with a nonprofit linked to cancellation of Dr. Zeus book and the uh, Nickelodeon race-based special to create an anti-racist book uh, list for K-12 through teachers. Um, and uh, and much more. So uh, if you embrace the changes that they're making, I suppose you'll be quite pleased. If not, you might want to just type and find yourself having to retype what you actually meant using the words that reflect what you actually want to say. Well, as mentioned, Republican Texas Governor Greg Abbott announced Wednesday that Texas had passed an abortion ban protecting every unborn child with a heartbeat. The heartbeat bill is now law in the Lone Star State, Abbott tweeted on Wednesday. This bill ensures the life of every unborn child with a heartbeat will be saved from the ravages of abortion, end quote. Well, Texas heartbeat bill bans abortion after the unborn baby has a heartbeat. By the end of that fourth week of pregnancy, according to the Cleveland Clinic, the unborn baby's tiny heart tube will beat about 65 times a minute, and the baby's heartbeat can be detected by about six weeks. Well, the law, which makes exceptions for medical emergencies, but not in the case of rape or incest, gives private citizens both in and out of Texas the power to sue abortion clinics or individuals who help women obtain abortions, according to the uh, local media. Well, this may make the uh, law more difficult to challenge in court. The publication noted Democratic lawmakers and abortion advocates fought hard against the new law, arguing that an unborn baby has a heartbeat as early as six weeks when many women do not know they are pregnant. Uh, we may not agree on the issue of abortion, but we should all be able to agree on S, uh, SB8 invites out-of-state extremists to use other legal systems to harass doctors and health care providers, they wrote in opposition 
to the legislation, which is now law. Well, Texas new law comes only days after news that the Supreme Court would review a case that directly challenging aspects of Roe versus Wade. Additionally, the pro-abortion Guttmacher Institute announced in late April the lawmakers have introduced 536 pro-life pieces of legislation since January. The number of abortion restrictions and specifically bans on abortion designed to directly challenge Roe versus Wade and the U.S. constitutional right to abortion that have swiftly been enacted over the past four months is unprecedented, Guttmacher said in a press release. And again, they are connected with Planned Parenthood. If this trend continues, uh, 2021 will end up as the most damaging anti-abortion or pro-life state legislative session in a decade and perhaps ever. Well, one can only hope that will, in fact, be the case. Well, tensions between Israel and Hamas have escalated to levels not seen since the 2014 Gaza War. And national security analyst Rebecca Grant uh, discussed Iran's uh, intentions and influence in the region. Well, since early last uh, week, Hamas and Israel have exchanged rocket fire and airstrikes. Uh, reigniting unrest in the Middle East, with sirens echoing across the southern part of Israel and civilians finding safety in bomb shelters. Many have questioned Iran's influence in the growing conflict. Well, Grant says Iran is a huge factor. I see Iran all over this from the call from the commander of the Quds Force talking to uh, Hamas. Of course, it's Iran who has supplied a lot of the missiles and the missile technology for these ongoing strikes that we're seeing. Well, President Biden spoke to Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu and Palestinian President Abbas on Saturday. And during the phone call with Netanyahu, Biden echoed his support for Israel's right to self-defense and committed to a negotiated two-state solution. Netanyahu spoke to the Israeli people following his call with the U.S. president, saying, Our aim is to send Hamas a message that it's not worth sending rockets next time they want. Well, president Biden has come under fire for his stance on Israel, as several prominent Democrats within his own party show disapproval. This is really turning into a deepening crisis for Biden. He also, uh, Grant uh, pointed out, has splits within the Democrat Party of those who are more assertive about Palestinian rights and those who are defenders of Israel. Well, Michigan Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib criticized the president on the House floor on Friday, claiming he did not recognize the Palestinian people's right to autonomy. Well, the commander in chief has also faced heavy criticism after announcing the administration is open to easing U.S. sanctions on Iran. U.S. and Iranian diplomats have traded talks to negotiate a reconstructed deal following former President Trump's abandonment of the 2015 Iraq nuclear deal, which from my perspective was the right thing to do. The Biden administration also announced this week that the U.S. will be releasing aid to the Palestinians. Rebecca Grant raised uh, certain uh, concerns over President Biden's diplomatic responses to Iran, saying, I'd like to see the Biden team step back from talking about reentering that nuclear deal with Iran. It's uh, it's too uh, bad that Biden already released money to Gaza, the Palestinians, through the U.N. It would have been uh, great to have um, have that hold over their heads, uh, particularly their influence over Hamas. We need to see um, really a much stronger response and a demand for a ceasefire that began uh, from Hamas. Meanwhile, former President George W. Bush said he doesn't think withdrawing U.S. troops from Afghanistan is necessary, saying he is deeply concerned that the vacuum will be will be created without U.S. president presence rather in the region. President Biden last month announced that the U.S. will withdraw all its troops from Afghanistan on September 11th, the 20th anniversary of 9-11 
the attacks. We'll tell you more about that when we return from the break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. As I was saying before the break, former President George Bush says that he doesn't think withdrawing troops from Afghanistan is necessary and says it's, uh, he's deeply concerned that the vacuum will be created without a U.S. presence in the region. Last month, uh, President Biden announced that the U.S. will withdraw all of its troops from Afghanistan on September 11th, which is the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks. Well, during an exclusive interview with Fox News, news about his new book, Out of Many, One, Portraits of America's Immigrants. President Bush discussed Biden's decision, referencing a portrait of Roya Mahoub, an Afghan woman who fled to Iran, escaping the Taliban's brutal oppression of women in Afghanistan. I've always warned that no U.S. presence in Afghanistan will create a vacuum, and into that vacuum is likely to come people who treat women as second-class citizens. Bush, who was president during the 9-11 attacks, uh, told Fox News, saying he spoke with Mahoub about Biden's announcement. She's very concerned, Bush said, and so, therefore, I am too. I'm uh, also deeply concerned about the sacrifices of our soldiers and our intelligence community that they'll uh, be forgotten, Bush told uh, uh, the commentator. And you know what? uh, Was it necessary? I don't think so, he continued. But the decision has been made and we now need to pray and hope that it's the right decision. By the way, uh, his book, uh, The Portraits of uh, Uh, Folks who have come to this country, the proceeds collected from the sale of the book are expected to benefit organizations uh, mentioned throughout its pages that help immigrants resettle, as well as the Bush Institute and its work on immigration. Well, the People's Republic of China last week became one of only three countries to successfully land a spacecraft on Mars. The Tianwen-1 mission, China's first mission beyond the Earth-Moon system, deployed the um, uh, Zhuyong lander on the Martian surface. That's part of the Chinese plan in the Tianwen uh, 1 mission to orbit land rove. Uh, the the uh, Zhurong rover appears to be an updated version of the Jade Rabbit rover that the Chinese have deployed on the surface of the moon. At about 529 pounds, it's smaller than the American Curiosity, which is 1,982 pounds, and the Perseverance, 2,200 pounds, uh, that's the uh, Perseverance rovers. Uh, nonetheless, it's, uh, it's substantially heavier than Sojourner, the first American Martian rover, which was only about 23 pounds, sustaining the Chinese pattern of making sure that their firsts are larger, heavier, or of longer duration than other firsts. Once the Zhurong uh, debarks from its carrier, it will spend about 90 days exploring its uh, surroundings in the area of Utopia uh, uh, Planitia or something like that. That region has been of interest to uh, astronomers because of the possibility of ice beneath the immediate surface. Well, water is a key resource for uh, any uh, crude exploration effort. Um, being able to exploit local water would reduce the need to bring water from Earth and would also provide any exploration efforts with an essential component for manufacturing fuel for the return voyage. But China has uh, reached the Red Planet as Beijing joins the Mars Club. Well, a 19-state coalition is urging President Biden to reinstate the Keystone XL pipeline and reverse his energy policies because of the recent gas shortages. 
Gas shortages along the East Coast caused a cyber, by a cyber attack on the Colonial Pipeline proved the need for reliable gas pipelines in the U.S. A 19-state coalition of attorney gen, attorneys general led by Montana Attorney General Austin Knudsen wrote in a letter to Biden on Monday. The U.S. needs better energy infrastructure if the shutdown of one pipeline leads to such extreme spikes in prices and lines at gas stations, they wrote. The state's attorney general said a temporary shutdown of one pipeline's full capacity operations shouldn't bring half the country to the brink. A coalition of states wrote to the president, we need more safe and clean energy sources, and that includes the Keystone XL pipeline. President um, Biden revoked the Keystone uh, Pipeline federal permits hours after he was sworn into office on the 20th of January. The White House explained that the U.S. would focus on developing a clean energy economy instead of installing gas pipelines. But the letter noted that the Biden administration took multiple emergency steps last week to secure the sharp um, the supply chain, the drop, and alleviate gas shortages in response to the Colonial Pipeline cyber attack. For example, the administration allowed tankers to transport overweight loads of gasoline on the interstate in 10 states and waived environmental regulations, preventing a a sufficient amount of gas to be taken to certain areas, according to a White House statement. If President Biden was uh, willing to take steps to save the Colonial Pipeline, he shouldn't also nick the... uh, shouldn't have uh, nicked the Keystone Pipeline, the attorney generals argued in their letter. Well, Americans are right to fight back against racial fanaticism now invading America's classrooms, workplaces, and even the White House. These misguided teachings, accepted as wholly writ by the, uh, pro- their proponents, are premised on easily disprovable propositions. Mike Gonzalez writes that critical race theory is being institutionalized throughout America, and it's not an improvement I would agree. Well, the core propositions are the following, that the persistence of racial disparities are prima facie evidence of racism so deep that it's systematic, that to destroy this racism, American culture must be re-engineered through re-education mini camps. And the only way to close the gap is through heavy handed use of racially discriminatory anti-racist government policies. Now, these are the underlying beliefs of racial critical race theory, which is now being institutionalized throughout society. Uh, Caucasian children are taught that they perpetuate racism, whatever their feelings or actions. Black children are taught that love of reading and writing and the use of reason are elements of white culture. And all children are taught that America is a hideous place. In workplaces, employees are being herded into anti-racism training programs resembling Maoist struggle sessions. Meanwhile, although one doesn't struggle, one is just taught and conforms. Meanwhile, woke corporation executives jump to punish communities that have the gall to make decisions they don't like. Well, now the Biden administration is making critical race theory our official state ideology. Its Department of Education has proposed prioritizing grants for courses that use critical race theory. President Joe Biden signed into law a loan forgiveness program that can be used by any farmer except those who are white. Clearly, we have returned to color-conscious government policymaking for the first time since the passage of the 1964 hard-fought-and-won Civil Rights Act. Well, at this point, we have to ask, are we uh, rushing into dismantling the most prosperous, freest, most fair society in history because of vague and woefully short-falling premises that fail to stand up to scrutiny? And the answer is yes. Addressing racial disparities, nothing wrong with that. 
addressing racism. Nothing wrong with that. But critical race theory is a bridge too far. Let's take this the uh, notion of systematic racism first. For critical race theory proponents like Richard uh, DeGaldo, racial disparities arise from a prevailing mindset by means of which members of the dominant group justify the world as it is, that is, with whites on top and browns and blacks at the bottom. This is a conscious decision that is made by members of the, the majority group. Or as Ibrahim X. Kendi puts it, when I see racial disparities, I see racism. The disparities, however, more likely result from choices that free Americans of all colors, now released from the yoke of government-imposed color-conscious policies, make for cultural reasons. Well, activists on the left of American politics claim that white supremacy, implicit bias, and old-fashioned anti-black racism are sufficient to account for black disadvantage. But this is a bluff that relies on cancel culture to be sustained. Well, the research strongly backs up um, Glenn Lurie, who is a professor at Brown University. Um, activists on the left of American politics claim that the supremacy and is... Um, are sufficient accounts for black disadvantage. Uh, but this is a bluff that relies on cancel, cul- cancel culture rather to be sustained, Brown University professor says. The simple retort, racism is laughable, as if such disparities have nothing to do with behavior, with cultural patterns, with what peer groups value, with how people spend their time, with what they identify as being critical to their own self-respect. The research strongly backs Uh, The professor, Columbia University professor Van C. Tran, has looked at children of West Indian immigrants. They grew up in troubled neighborhoods, segregated from whites, and because they lack a foreign accent, uh, are seen as undifferentiated blacks by cops, store owners, employers, landlords, teachers, etc. That is, they too face discrimination. Yet the West Indians strongly outperform across eight important measures, high school dropout, unemployment, Uh, The NEAT rate or not in education, not in employment, not in training, college graduate, professional attainment, arrest rate, incarceration rate, and teen pregnancy, and all but uh, college graduate and professional attainment, second-gen West Indians are closing the gap with whites. And these are worth exploring and uh, really challenge the oversimplified view of critical race theory. We need to take a quick break, but we'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Earlier in the program, in the first hour, we talked with Jack Phillips along with his attorney, Jonathan Scruggs. Jack Phillips' latest book is The Cost of My Faith, How a Decision in My Cake Shop Took Me to the Supreme Court. He stood on principle and on his conscience, and it's cost him dearly. Uh, I was reminded that across the globe, international religious freedom is notably uh, more at risk than ever before. Freedom to gather, freedom to worship, to pray, to share beliefs and traditions of faith are increasingly being violated. It spans the world from Asia to Africa to the Middle East and beyond. Numerous countries are repeatedly cited uh, year after year for inflicting dangerous and pretty deadly abuses on the religious minorities within their borders. And Christians continue to pay the ultimate price for their faith. Open Doors, which is a trusted watchdog, recently reported that globally, more than 340 million Christians, one in eight, face high levels of persecution and discrimination because of their Christian faith. In addressing the issue, perhaps one of the most significant reports uh, regarding um, IRF emanates from the U.S. State Department. Their 2020 report was released on May the 12th. Um, It's been regularly reported 
uh, of the violations uh, while seeking solutions for beleaguered people of faith. In recent months, we've focused on uh, abuses in China, North Korea, and Nigeria, to name just a few. The 2020 State Department report undergirds the concern for these countries. For example, with regard to China, the 2020 report explains Christians, Muslims, Tibetan, Buddhists, and Fulan Gong practitioners reported severe societal discrimination in employment, in housing, business opportunities. In um, Xinjiang and Tibet, authorities continue to suppress Uyghur and Tibetan language and culture. Anti-Muslim speech and social media remained widespread. As former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo pointed out last October, the gravest threat to the future of religious freedom is the Chinese Communist Party's war against people of all faiths, Muslims, Buddhists, Christians and Fulan Gong practitioners alike. North Korea is a close society and it's um, nearly impossible to know precisely what takes place inside the so-called hermit kingdom. But the new State Department report provides some indications. Open Doors USA estimated that at year's end, 50 to 70,000 citizens were in prison for being Christian. 50 to 70,000 citizens in prison for being Christian. Uh, In May, the NGO Christian Solidarity Worldwide estimated 200,000 individuals were being held in prison camps, many for being Christian. As for Nigeria, the danger and death toll has only gotten worse in recent months, and the Nigerian government has been worse than useless in protecting its non-Muslim population. Catholic Bishop of Sokoto, Matthew Kuka, He summed up the matter this way, and I'm quoting, We are being told that this situation has nothing to do with religion. Really. It is what happens when politicians use religion to extend the frontiers of their ambition and power. By denying Christians lands for places of worship across most of northern states, ignoring the systematic destruction of churches all these years, denying Christians adequate recruitment and representation and promotions in the state civil services, denying their indigenous children scholarships, marrying Christian women or converting Christians while threatening Muslim women and prospective converts with death, they make building a harmonious community impossible. Meanwhile, also on the 12th of May, the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom held a hearing ending genocide, U.S. government genocide determination and next steps in a webinar format. It focused on two specific issues, the Burmese military continuing to violently target the mostly Muslim um, Rohingya and the Chinese government continuing to hold predominantly Muslim Uyghur people in detention camps and act measures to decrease the population and actively separate children from their parents. In further evidence provided by the five Yazidi Foundation, in 2014, Yazidi Christian genocide perpetuated by ISIS in Iraq also provided recent and potent examples of entire and religious groups being specifically targeted. Believers suffering for their faith. It's important to note that genocide designations are just a step and more must be done to effectively halt and prevent ongoing mass atrocities against religious groups, regardless of what those atrocities are called. We cannot just focus on the label of genocide as the uh, longer government deliberates on the terminology, the more uh, perpetrators are emboldened to continue their genocidal process. Alongside those uh, deliberations, governments must vigilantly look for early warning signs and stand up to prevent mass atrocities wherever they could occur. And of course, in some cases, um, governments find it rather useful uh, to allow those genocides to continue. 
Well, as these two developments show us, there is much more to be done in the area of international religious freedom. And for believers who don't have the power or authority to change the uh, the laws, we can appeal to the one who has the uh, power to change the heart of a king, uh, to change whole systems, to topple um, leaders and rulers and systems um, that persecute those who um, hold to their religious faith. Now, of course, as followers of Jesus, we are uh, very concerned about Christians, but we're also concerned about others who are persecuted for the practice of their faith as well. And we're seeing that in these areas mentioned in this most recent report. So I hope we are remembering to pray for the persecuted church as we reflect on challenges in our own culture, Jack Phillips being one example, Baronella Stutzman, I had uh, the opportunity to meet her for the first time face-to-face, although we've talked about her case, and I believe I've interviewed her once on this program years ago. These are ongoing challenges. It's not a one-time event for individuals who say, you know, my conscience will not permit me as a follower of Jesus to, um, to provide this particular service. And whether or not you as an individual agree with that, violating one's conscience is a serious thing. Uh, having to um, make the case before courts, having to live in communities where there's perhaps a misunderstanding or a lack of appreciation for an individual standing for their principles um, makes life very difficult. But as uh, we heard from Jack Phillips, uh, he would not reverse course that God has been faithful throughout, and that even though their business has been uh, modified dramatically, the most lucrative part of their business was cake baking um, for weddings. That is no longer a part of the business, but God has provided in other ways, sustaining the family. So I think all of us, um, as we're praying for those abroad who are suffering persecution for their Christian faith and for other religious minorities who suffer persecution uh, for following their beliefs, Um, We need to be in prayer for them, but also preparing for the possibility that we may be called upon to stand firm on what we know to be true. It may not be um, exercising one's freedom as an artist, whether that's a musician or a cake baker or some other capacity. It may be um, in one's workplace or in the place uh, that you receive your education. We are called upon to stand firm on our convictions. One of the things Jack Phillips said was that one of the reasons that we not only were able to make the announcement, the pronouncement at the time the request was made, but to stand firm throughout these years of litigation was that we had made a decision that we were going to stand on our conviction and what we believe to be a biblically sound uh, position long before we were ever confronted. And so we would uh, do well to do the same, to consider where that bright line is drawn for us in our um commitment to follow Christ and to stand for truth. Well, I want to thank James Blend for producing today's program, Clark Hilton for engineering, and Dan Rice for the use of his office. Tomorrow we'll take a look at the lighter side of the news. We'll share the Christian outlook as well. So I hope you will join us. In the meantime, thanks for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day and have a good night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at GRice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.